0: This is the third uh, benchmark message on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, and if you uh, were not with us on the other two messages, it might be incumbent for you to go back and listen to those online. But um, in this interim period, I wanted to do a series of messages that I come back to again and again, some of these teachings, some of the theology, because um, I need to be reminded these things do not change. Um, And this morning, I want to focus on four ministries of the Holy Spirit, four things, the person and work, what he does. Uh, One of the things I want to caveat with is the discussion about experience and authority. I had some interesting conversations in this past week with people about experiences because as I acknowledge, we all have experiences, but experiences cannot have authority. If we have two believers in Christ who have different experiences and different outcomes, we can't say one's right and one's wrong experiences are just that they are experiences they're important they're helpful i'm not saying we live a non experiential christian life but we must be very careful Um, when we elevate our experience equal to or above scripture we're going to get in trouble if god told me god led me god showed me a plus b equals c and it worked out that can become dangerous because when A plus B equals C doesn't work out or things change or run amuck, or sin, this nasty thing enters in and messes things up, then our experience comes into question. Experiences are important. It's a walk of salvation. But one thing that helps me is understanding salvation and sanctification. Salvation, that point in time when you walk the aisle, pray the prayer, when you trust it in Christ and Christ alone. Salvation but now we're being sanctified. We're being transformed into the image of the person and work of Jesus Christ, not like we used to be. I've asked this question to myself over and over. I've asked it of you. Are you any more like Christ now than you were last year, than when you got saved? Are you growing and maturing? And, you know, we can fog a mirror as a Christian, but are we growing? Are our we, are we, are, are, are hearts changing? Are we, in my case, am I less critical? Am I a little kinder, when I tend to be kind of black and white. Uh, some of us have a patience problem. Some self, am I a little more patient? You're never going to be 100% in this earth, but you and I should be able to see growth. If you're a person who talks a lot, as I do, uh, when I'm in a group or a lunch or a dinner or whatever, do I keep my mouth shut a little more often? If you never talk and you're reserved, are you able to contribute, to encourage, to speak? So we're looking for how these intangible things, how we measure salvation, the point of time, conversion, sanctification, are we growing? And the problem with the Holy Spirit is we don't understand who He is or how He works. He's this ghost, He's a bird landing on Jesus' head, He's an icon somewhere, or we have some really interesting theology about what He does and who He is. And so these messages hopefully will give you a little bit more of a foundation about um, what the Spirit does, who He is, how He works. And obviously it's a bit of a mystery because He is spiritual, but the text does give us a lot of helpful information. Uh, Biblical wisdom perhaps is the most overlooked part of the Christian life. Uh, We often say the Scripture is sufficient for all of our Christian life, but the, the Scripture doesn't tell me how to repair a lawnmower. The Scripture is not going to tell you how to deal with this particular problem. As a medical personnel, uh, it's not going to tell you how to diagnose a patient or treat a patient. Scripture offers us biblical wisdom, right? And that's the area I think we miss in a lot of our experiences and decision-making in life, what's biblical, what's wise, and placing value and understanding on this. Um, In our time in Nashville now, which is, I think Cindy reminded me, 13 years now, hard to believe, gosh, we've been married 40 years, and this is the longest place we've ever lived, which is kind of fun. Um, And we were talking about the nomenclature and how Christians talk about things. And in the last decade or so, the word story has worked its way into the vernacular of Christianity in in a very interesting way. And I'm not anti-using that word, I just find it interesting how it's your story, and books written about story, and you know, what's your story? And a friend of Cindy's of mine published a book about his story in your life. And I'm like, eh, okay, I want to be careful not to you know, toss everything out. But I find this interesting. This isn't a bedtime story. This isn't a happy ending story necessarily. Happily ever. This is not a story reduced to experiential theology and how I see God working. I don't think that's unimportant, I think that's dangerous. Our story needs to be aligned with being a disciple with sanctification. Our story needs to be aligned with, am I growing in biblical wisdom? Am I becoming more like Christ? I know I protest too much in this regard, but horizontal experiences must have a vertical interpretation. And when you take that horizontal story or experience and you elevate that to equal or above Scripture, and why do we do this? It's a lot easier to talk about my experience than to spend time in the Word. It's a lot easier to talk about you know, what I'm seeing in life and work and job and contract and love and, and heartbreak and going to college. and it, Those are easy to talk about. Can we talk about what I read today in the Scripture and how it impacted me? I did my little uh, handbook to prayer this morning. If you don't have one, we do have some in the back. If you, continue, if you consider yourself sort of a regular person who comes, a regular attender here, we're happy to give you one. Uh, they're expensive books, but we're happy to give you one. It's a paint-by-numbers Pray through the Bible. I uh, pray through the Scripture in ninety days, and it's month one, month two, month three, and you and you recycle them. It's great. And this morning, as often happens with that book, I'm lost in the weeds in Daniel because he used some passages from Daniel, which was actually uh, the the pagan king's prayer. And I'm going, why did he choose to use this? So you know, thirty minutes later, I'm in a rabbit hole uh, reading Daniel seven. But nevertheless, it gets me out of email and text. And all the things that start to take over life, the experience of life, and it recalibrates me. Michael, if you can't start the morning with a few minutes with the Lord, you're going to be a little bit off all day long. Um, I mentioned this every week now so far. Some of you may be new. I mentioned it again. I didn't bring them physically. But you need a single volume theology handbook. And I have a list we had somewhere of like a Paul ends or... Charles Ryrie, or if you're ambitious, Wayne Grudem's big systematic one. I think it's a little too much for most people. Uh, I've got a shelf of single-volume theologies because I I can't get this information. Remember we talked about the Collier Encyclopedia last week? I had some fun stories with people about it. How many of you had Colliers growing up? It really dates us when we're talking about Colliers. Um, but then you had World Book. You might know World Book, right? So my father would send me to get the World Book, and we went to get what? The Index. Not, not Volume 3, but the Index. And you looked in the Index. I hated, as, I hated it, hated it, hated it as a kid. I said, well, Dad, what's photosynthesis? Go get the Colliers. Oh, God, why'd I ask the question? You know? And so now we're at the kitchen table with all these encyclopedias out. What a single volume of theology does is that homework for you. So you want to know about the role of Holy Spirit, Ryrie, Inns, Grudem, they have sections, and they organize the passages, keeping in mind the context, keeping in mind what's going on historically, and they give you the references, and they give you some commentary on how we sew these things together. So uh, beyond your Bible, and maybe a study Bible, and maybe if you have a few devotional books you should own. And I'm, I'm still, I'm totally electronic because so I have thousands of books in my electronic library, but I still like the physical nature of a handbook of theology and a text because it keeps me from these rabbit trails that I'm so easily pulled into. Well, let's talk about these four ministries, and the reason I mentioned the books again is because it's helpful to understand there's a place I can find this out. You can't Think through baptizing the Holy Spirit by just reading the Bible. Oh, well, you can if you want to go to seminary for four years. But if you want some answers to questions you have, those are the encyclopedias to get you started. Make sense? Okay, let's look at these four ministries. The first one is the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. It, I think, of all the ministries, is perhaps the most interesting and confusing when you look across different evangelical, Bible-believing people groups of what is this person and work. Now, let me give you a real simple uh, analogy as we begin. There are two baptisms in the New Testament, wet or dry. Wet or dry. It's that simple. Is it an immersion baptism, or is it a spiritual baptism? And this, if you want to do a quick study, the word baptized, baptized, baptism is not mentioned very many times in the New Testament. The Gospels deal with it differently Acts deals with it differently. Paul mentions it a few times, and then it disappears. So when you look at the New Testament use of this terminology, you have to ask, is this a wet baptism or a dry baptism? So some of you may have grown up in a church when you had a second baptism. Any hands grew up in a context like that? There was a second baptism. Some had a third baptism. The Holy Spirit was second, and the third was fire. That's an interesting one to think about. I don't know what it means, but uh, some people believe in it. I want to begin with all four Gospels, and then look at Acts, and then look at 1 Corinthians. And I'm going to look at a lot of texts today. They'll be on the screen. Don't feel like you have to copy them. Try to take in what these passages are teaching us and keeping in mind, and I'll remind you of this, the time these things are written. Because we have theology being explained to us as it changed from John's baptism to the Holy Spirit's baptism, to what becomes the baptism that we do in the New Testament for believers. So let's look. All Gospels, including John, Synoptics and John, refer to this. The first one is in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. And when I officiate or serve or pray for somebody who's getting baptized, I generally talk about this passage. Why don't you read it with me? Mark, uh, Matthew 3, verse 11. "'As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance.' But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now I remind you, John is a transitional, we might call him the last Old Testament prophet and the first New Testament prophet. He's the forerunner. He's south of the southern steppes. He's in the area of the Jordan. The Jew is very familiar with going up to worship, and they would hit the mikvahs. And they would go, men only, would go through the ritual baptism of a mikveh before they would go into the temple complex to worship for, let's say, Passover. So they were familiar with baptism in the Old Testament. This is often, so well, the Jews didn't baptize, Contrary, The Jews were very familiar with mikvah and ritual washings. So John's out in the wilderness, and just as a quick reminder, his baptism is different than Jesus. His baptism is different than a salvation baptism. And he says in this passage, I baptize you with water for repentance. Now, what are they repenting of? And this is so helpful for me personally. I hope it is for you. Uh, Think think about Christians you know. Maybe you fall in this category. We're not living the best Christian life. Maybe we're dabbling with an affair. Maybe we're, you know, slacking off. Maybe we're looking at pornography. Maybe we're doing some shady things with money. Maybe we're just, you know, we've lost our, we're apathetic towards Christ. but But we're believers. And something comes along and kind of stirs you up. Guilt, shame, whatever. That just might be the Spirit, by the way. Uh, it kind of stirs you up and going, you know, you need to get your act together, Michael, here. Um, you need to get your act together and get cleaned up. Let's use this as a metaphor. That's how the Jew understood this baptism. They were pious, God-fearing, believing Jews, waiting for Messiah, mistreated, enslaved, all the things we have today, nothing's new. And this crazy guy is baptized for repentance because, short, short verse, the Messiah's coming. The kingdom's coming. Get your act together. So that baptism that John is, is doing is get back on schedule. We might say, you've been out of church for years. Get back in fellowship. Get back around. In the book. Get your nose back in the book. Spend a few minutes in prayer during the day. Have some accountability in your life. Get back. That's essentially what's going on. And he says, I'm baptizing you as an illustration of your mikveh, your repentance. But one's coming after me. His baptism is different. Mark says the same thing, essentially. He's also recording John's word. Mark 1.8, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So we're going from a wet to a dry baptism. Luke 3, verse 16. John the Baptist answered and said to them, As for me... I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now those are the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But even John, the Holy Spirit, God wants this recorded. John 1.33, I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So the gospel records are all anticipating Christ is going to come and one feature of his ministry is he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Not a mikvah, not a ritual watching, but I'm going to baptize you in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Did they understand what that meant the way we do? That's a really good and very hard to answer question. I think the God-fearing, pious Jews knew about Messiah. They knew about the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31 and following. They knew some things, but did they understand it the way John did? Likely not, because think of how John was treated. So when Jesus' baptism occurs, which we talked about two weeks ago, we have the Trinitarian doctrine. We have the, the voice from heaven, the Father, the Spirit descending as a dove, like a dove, Christ is identified. The voice says, This is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. What's happening there is God's identifying the God man Jesus. The Holy Spirit is part of that experience, and that identification is Trinitarian big word. A Trinitarian doctrine is being established. And as I've said many times, apart from a Trinitarian doctrine, you can't be saved. You have to have the work of the Father, you have to have the substitutionary atonement of the Son and you have to have the indwelling and sealing of the Spirit, or you're not a believer. That's why these churches that are modalist or don't talk about the Spirit, uh, maybe there are Christians that are confused in those situations, but that's not what Scripture teaches. And those passages are so stellar that this identification has occurred. That's the Gospels. Now, let's go to Acts. Jesus has died. He's been buried. He's resurrected. He's appeared a few times. He's ascending. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, for John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the holy spirit not many days from now Jesus told them wait in Jerusalem until I send the spirit in the upper room discourse so now let's fast forward not quite 50 years and the apostle Paul comes along and he writes in 1 Corinthians 12:13 for by one spirit we were were past tense all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks for the slaves are free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Do you see the process here? The identification is being changed from a baptism of repentance to a being identified with Christ and acknowledgement of that, that what's, tra- what's changing from John's baptism to Jesus, and of course, John will diminish. John. And if you're a... a, a Tolkien fan, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings fan. You remember those, was the the Witch of the Woods or whatever. I, I can now de- I can now decrease. I can now de- a total homage to John the Baptist. I can now decrease because the King is going to come. So we've got these pictures through Scripture, and by 1 Corinthians, Paul says, No, one Spirit, we're all baptized into one body. Identification, identification. Simply, baptism establishes a union with Christ and a union with believers. A union with Christ and a union with believers. The moment you walk the aisle, pray the prayer, the moment you knelt by your bed when you were a child, the moment you trusted Christ, you put your faith in Him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. The moment that happened, you were baptized in the Spirit of Christ. And we'll talk about indwelling in a few minutes. But the Holy Spirit is... You're identified. You're at union with him. Uh, Any of you grew up in a culture or context when you came to Christ and maybe you were baptized and someone said, you're now part of the family of God. You ever heard that expression? That's a pretty good depiction because we have union with one another. And by the by, I can look in this room. There are some people in this room, and I hope that's true of you too. I'm closer with than my family, my biological family. Sad though that may be, there's a, there's a connection between brothers and sisters in Christ. It's rich and intimate and wonderful. And you, you, have you traveled somewhere? And I remember Cindy and I were at a state park, I believe, in Colorado. And we just happened to be there with a couple that she knew from childhood, Dave and Rosie um, Whitelock. And they had run a camp in Texas that she grew up as a girl and later went back and she was a counselor there for years. And we ran into David and Rosie and we we sat at this picnic table and David and I talked for probably three hours. And we cried. They had they had lost a child, had they not? Or, they'd lost a child. He told me that story. I never met this guy. There was a, have you had that experience? There was a connection there because why? We are related to one another in Christ. We have union with Christ and union with God's people. And I hope you've experienced that with believers around the world. I've experienced in Nigeria and Russia and Novosibirsk, all over the place. You meet a Christian and there's a connection. That's because the Holy Spirit has baptized you and me and we have a union with one another and with Christ. Um, Secondly, again, I mentioned it, this identification. That's a word I would love for you to just get cemented in your head. Whether it's water baptism or spirit baptism, you are now identified with Christ. I'm no longer who I was. Um, Notice also that this baptism of the Holy Spirit is unique to the church age. This did not happen in the Old Testament. They were waiting for this. If we read the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31 and following, they were waiting for this spirit. But prior to that, he would come and go, depending on how God used him in people's lives. Colossians 1, uh, Corinthians 1, 12 through 13, the union to me is also an important passage because right now we're so crazy as a country. I can't hardly stand to get on my Twitter account, much less my, even Instagram is becoming just a battleground. I'm like, Boy, people need a life. You know, COVID's got them doing this all day long, I guess. It's all we do. Look at our dumb phone and social media. Look up. By the way, I'm proud of you for coming to church. You're brave people. You know, you're brave people. You got in your car and you came to church. Good for you. Um, Sorry, I'm a herd guy. Forgive me. Be patient with me. Um, But this union with Christ sets across race, sex, nationality? And again, I've told this story too many times perhaps. When I met Baba in Nigeria, that would be like grandpa, You everybody called him Baba. Cataracts, almost deaf, his wife was deaf, and a small modest brick home with a tin roof and pictures of their family, one who would married a Muslim and was killed, and the other one who had married a Muslim and was off, off-grid, so to speak. He was the most joyful, delightful Christian I've ever met in my life, and he had nothing. And I came back to the States worrying about my health care and my social security and my retirement and my money and my house payment. This guy had nothing. And he had more joy in Christ than most Western Christians experience. Cut across race, cut across nationality, cut across country, cut, cut across time, because there was a union with the Spirit of Christ. Please notice this is not experiential. Uh, Paul points out the work of God on the believer's life. Also notice this is baptism by the Holy Spirit, by the work of the Spirit of Christ. You and I don't pray for this. We don't ask for this. It occurs the moment you trust in Christ. This may seem a little pedantic and detailed. I think it's important for you and me to understand Who is this person, and what does he do? One of his ministries is baptizing or identifying. Secondly, the indwelling of the Spirit. And I want to just look at three passages to illustrate this. I've mentioned this the last two times, but I want to review for those who perhaps weren't here or if you're new today. John 14, 16. John 13, especially 14 through 18, are some of the most important luscious theology and intimate looks into the person of Jesus Christ you will ever get. There's good reason for young believers or anybody to spend time in the Gospel of John. Easiest vocabulary, most rich theology in the same little book. And in this we get an insight, Jesus, Judas is going to leave Go betray Jesus. Now he's left with his 11 closest friends on the planet. And what's recorded in John 14 through 18 in the so-called high priestly prayer is, I mean, you, you close your mouth when you read those verses. Keep your hand over your mouth because you're listening to Jesus Christ give his last words to his 11 closest friends about what's in their future. And he tells them in verse 16 and 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Parakletos." that he may be with you forever. This is a major change from the Old Testament indwelling of the Spirit. David prays after a sin, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Some of us are old enough to remember the, the little chicky songs we used to sing, take not your Holy Spirit from me, from the psalm. I, I don't want to lose your spirit. Well, that doesn't happen in the New Testament. John, 1 John 4.13, by this, I love this verse. We know that we abide in him and he is in us because he has given us his spirit. Um, When you meet Christians and perhaps you've gone, how many of you, I went through this, were not sure you were saved at different times of your Christian life? Loud and proud. I mean, I wonder, am I really saved? Which is one of the reasons my dear friend, Mike Glenn, who I love, he's a brother, he's a friend. I said, Mike, I can't be a Baptist. Every Sunday you'd guilt and shame me into walking out. I would walk the aisle every time. Uh, Some of us know a Baptist guy who's gone on record. He was baptized like five times because he wasn't sure. You know, I mean, I can be guilt and shame. Yeah, I I am a terrible, despicable. You don't. If you're raised Catholic, you can identify Catholics own guilt and shame. (laughs) They own it, baby. A nun can look at you and you're guilty and ashamed. You're you know it. You did something wrong. You admitted you know it. And this verse is mind boggling. We know we know that we abide in him and he is in us because he has given us the spirit. I've said many times the Holy Spirit is better than a guilty conscience. A guilty conscience is a frustrating thing. A guilty conscience might be good if we're doing something wrong. But a guilty conscience just makes me feel guilty. The Holy Spirit is Better than a guilty conscience because his concern for you and me is that we repent of our sin. We deal with that guilt and shame and we're identified with Christ as a growing disciple. It's a beautiful thing. And I love this verse that you know you abide in him. The indwelling work of the spirit is a huge thing to me personally. Ephesians 1.13 we've looked at several times and we'll look at it one more time this morning. But there's so much going on. Now, again, we've gone from the gospel when Christ was alive, to 1 John, which is after him. Now we're going to jump, again, almost 50 years, not quite, ahead to Paul's writing in Ephesus, Ephesians 1.13, in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You had to hear it. At some point, you had to walk the aisle, pray the prayer, trust Christ. That's a point in time. That's a benchmark. Having also believed you were sealed with him, with the Holy Spirit of promise. And we talked about the term sfragizo. We talked about the signet ring. We talked about the seal on the tomb. It was the authority of some other power or person verifying the contents of this was legitimate. So when you got the letter, the love letter in the old romance period, and you broke the seal, your lover had written you that. No one else had looked at it or accosted it or changed the information. It was sealed by the signet, the Latin. So the term was, you're sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So I love Paul's connection. You had to hear it. You had to believe it. When you believed it, you were sealed. The signet ring ran across you. Now, just to review the Holy Spirit's a gift the Holy Spirit indwells us at the moment of salvation and he's permanently in our lives and this is interesting we'll look at it in a moment even when you and I persist in sin He's still present in your life He indwells us at a, as a gift at the time of our salvation and he's permanently indwelling you. Two verses to underscore this Romans chapter 8 verse Nine. However, you were not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed, or you could inject the phrase "since," that's not an unfair translation here. Since the spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. Paul's saying here: if you're a believer, the spirit indwells you. Period. If you're not a believer. Obviously He doesn't indwell you. A similar line of teaching that many of us know this from an application that unfortunately is sort of used to browbeat us, but it's a helpful verse if we understand it. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God and that you are not your own. One of my devotional life prayers, and I would say this is a change that God's working in my life the last few years and you've heard me say this if you if you hear me enough say my life is not my own I need to be reminded of this I need to be reminded my life is not just horizontal I, I've shared with you too much information about my uh, recent interest into audiophile world and I'm I'm it's probably a problem. Since I've talked about this. I think it's become a problem. <laughs> and I read, and I listen, and I watch videos, and I read reports, and I'm analyzing equipment, and I'm buying, you know, it's a sinkhole. And so I had to ask some of my friends, is this a problem? So somebody on my Twitter account or Instagram account put, don't let audiophile teach you theology. <laughs> 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 Booyah. <laughs> that was great. I <laughs> like, you know, and so I have to go... My bottle is a temple of the Holy Spirit. My life's not my own. Now, t- keep that intention with Ecclesiastes, which the, the byline is, enjoy the stuff of life. I love the reformers. I'm drinking to the glory of God. I'm eating to the glory of God. I have a friend, arch-reformed Anglican, interesting cat. And uh, when we would have a meal, he, we'd pray with him and he goes, we're going to eat to the glory of God. And I thought... I'm just eating because I'm hungry and I want, you know, I want to get that food in my stomach. And no, we're eating to the glory of God. And after we'd finished, he'd go, thank you, Lord. I hope we ate to the glory of God. You know, there's an there's a important shift, especially if you came out of a legalistic background, to enjoy the stuff of life, caveat, to the glory of God. If he's giving you wealth, if you're in medicine and you're helping patients, whatever your worldview is, you're teaching people, you know, you're doing it to the glory of God. It's not just for your own benefit, it's to help other people. Well, I'm preaching. Um, this comes from a guy named Raineker in a book that's a linguistic book, but I like what he says here. The carnal Christian, he's speaking of Corinthians in particular, who were guilty of incest, suing other believers and other sins, were nonetheless indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Oh, that gives a lot of us gas. When a person lives in sin, we say, well, they couldn't be a Christian. Contrary, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Your body is a temple. Why would he be telling you this if you were a Christian and your life was going hunky-dory? He wouldn't. He continues. If only a select group is indwelt by the Spirit, then the Corinthians would not have been indwelt. Fair statement? And he cites a few verses and he goes, Romans 8 and so forth and so on, demand the conclusion that all believers, regardless of their spiritual condition, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're legalistic or you come out of a background that was heavy handed in that regard, you might have a problem with that because a person who persists in sin must not be a Christian. And now we're into that experiential evaluation of life. I don't know who's saved. I do like to say that when we live in sin, we lose the assurance of salvation. This is in pencil. This is just an observation. When people choose to live in persistent sin, they tend to sort of ameliorate. They look at it and they go, well, yeah, I believe that. I don't believe it anymore. I don't know if they're a Christian or not. But I know the Holy Spirit is better than a guilty conscience. I know in time that those traps will become empty. And, you know, we have people very close in our lives where their traps are running empty. And maybe that's what God uses to bring them back. So, I, you know, I, I'm not going to sit there and say you can't be a Christian if you do X. But it seems in Corinth, do you not know your body is a temple of Holy Spirit whom you have from God and you are not your own? All right, let's go on. Thirdly, sealing, the sealing work of the Holy Spirit. Again, we've talked about this a quick review um, this, I, the reason I like this doctrine and this work of the Spirit is because it gives us assurance of our salvation. It gives us, I know I'm saved. Because what happens to our experience? Does our experience ever help us confirm that we're saved? As my Armenian friends would say, on a good day, maybe I'm going to heaven. On a bad day, I don't know if I'm going to heaven. What a horrible way to live. Well, Scripture doesn't leave room for that. Scripture gives us clarity um, the sealing of the Spirit secures our salvation and His indwelling authenticates that we're owned by somebody else. Look at 2 Corinthians 1.22. Who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. And I talked about that last time. A pledge was like a down payment. You can go buy a car or a house or a boat or a motorcycle and you weren't intending to, but you went and you go, well, you know, I'll I'll give you a down payment. You can put it on my card or I'll give you a check for $1,000 to hold that. And then I'll go back and get my cash, not my financing, and I'll come back and I'll pay you for my motorcycle or whatever I am gonna buy, right? So that was a pledge that held that, thing from being sold to somebody else. It's called earnest money when you're purchasing a home. You put down earnest money so they don't sell it to someone else, right? Ephesians 1.13, again, in him also after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Again, this encourages me because it secures my salvation. It's not what I do, what he's done he put his seal on me i'm his lastly ephesians four thirty: do not grieve the holy spirit of god by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption take that verse by its by just by itself evidently this is a saved person who's sealed and he says don't grieve the holy spirit meaning you can sin and we looked at some of those last week you can grieve the spirit of god as you and i choose to sin all right, finally, let's look at the filling, and this is a far-reaching uh, topic, and again, boy, if you were raised Catholic, Protestant, uh, charismatic, neo-evangelical, whatever, this is a far-reaching topic, and there's no way I'll encompass it all, but I want to give you some very specific help. Helps me, I think it'll help you. The filling of the Spirit is the one thing, listen to me, that can be measured. These are things I can't measure. Now, I'm going to put measure in quotations. But these other things can't be measured. They're theological truths. I'm indwelt, I'm baptized, I'm sealed. But we get some interesting information from the Scripture on what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's look at a couple of these passages. Ephesians 5. 18 to 19, I'll never forget. Do you have those verses that you went, wow, that one, it, the light went on. When I read that passage, it's like the light, it was a joy of discovery. I'll never forget. I can remember when I was in college in Galatians 2.20, jumped off the page, blew, I mean, I, I don't smile much. I'm kind of a dour Eeyore kind of guy. I mean, I was happy. I was blown away. Galatians 2.20. Any of y'all know it? I have been crucified with Christ, say if you know it. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life that I now live, I live by in the who loved me and delivered himself up from me. And that verse hit me on both temples and the heart and the chest and the mind went, wow. That's what it means to know Christ and live a sanctified life. I live in the flesh but I live by faith. You know, maybe you have verses like that. So when we think about filling, keep those kind of things in mind. Now let's look at Ephesians 5, 18 to 19, which was another one. And I'd ask you to read this along with me. And I want you to notice the grammar. I don't like to overdo this. But Paul and Peter rarely tell us not without saying, you know, don't do this, but do this. It's a device they use. No longer sin, but do... I mean, it's one, it, would be very, it wouldn't be helpful to say, stop sinning! Okay. <laughs> it doesn't help. Instead, be a blessing, Peter will write. Well, let's look at this contrast, don't but. Keep that in mind. Read with me. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So if this was uh, wine and I drink it to excess, at some point the wine is going to control me. I'll be under the influence When a law enforcement person pulls you over and you're DUI, you're under the influence. You're no longer in, you don't have your own capacity to drive that vehicle without endangering yourself and others. You're driving under the influence. This is nothing new. Paul says, don't let an external substance control you, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't let something external control you, but let the internal person of the Spirit of God. This was another one's verses, just blew my mind. And he helps us out. What does that look like if I'm filled with the Spirit? Well, it looks like this. I'm talking about God. I'm talking about psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I've told most of you, you know this already, I have an Augustine reading group on Mondays. We all all, uh, WebEx in eight or nine of us and we, we talk about Augustine's confessions that we're reading and what these, the insight these guys have and what they see and how we all contribute to the discussion. It blows me away. And you know what? We're talking about God. We're talking about the word. We're talking about what this means to us. We're talking about when Augustine was wonky. We're talking about when Augustine cut to the heart. I mean, this is 348 AD. This is an old church father. And what he wrote is just as pertinent then as it is today. And it's remarkable. And so we're talking about this, and when the hour goes by, uh, most of us don't want to quit. Some of you are in a BSF or a precept or a community Bible study or maybe a small group, and when you're in the Word in the thick of it, and it's like, we got to stop. No, wait a minute. This is too rich. Just- See, that's what's happening is that you and I are being filled by uh, the Spirit, and one of the ways we measure it, what are we talking about? What are we talking about? One of my mentors, uh, Floyd Sharp, who's with the Lord, he was a Christian psychologist. He was almost retired when I met him and retired during the 15 years he was a friend and mentor. was a fabulous guy. And in his 70s, I think I've told you this story, he's an odd guy. You know those zip-up jumpsuits? That's what he wore. And he would stick smiley face stickers on his person. Ran- randomly. Randomly. And he would walk, in the- he was in his 70s, and he walked the Irving Mall there in Texas for his exercise. And he would see these ladies there that were kind of, you know, and he'd go, you look like you need a hug. And all these old ladies would be hugging on him. I mean, today he'd go to jail, right? But... <laughs> We would go to the Luby's Cafeteria, all know Luby's Cafeteria, and he liked to go there and get the Luann platter. That was his meal, the Luann platter. And there'd be this woman back there with a hairnet. She'd been serving that carrot and raisin thing for 37 years. And uh, she'd say, you know, you want some salad? She'd, you want some salad? He'd say, you look like you need a hug. That woman would leave her station, walk, if you know the way these things work, walk down to the cash register. And Floyd's hugging on, well, where's my hug? And all these old ladies, where are they hugging Floyd? The manager's got his hands on his hips. You should have seen Floyd's plate when we got to the end of that line. (laughs) There was no Lou Ann Platter. It was, you know, it was Megan hanging over the thing. And he had this way about himself. It was just fascinating. And when we would sit down and talk over lunch, what's the Lord teaching you? What are you learning he would walk in the mall and memorize scripture. When the two of us went to lunch, happened nine out of ten times. The waiter, would come up and ask us, he goes, he goes, Do you know Christ? And he'd get away with it. Some people get away with it. And we'd have this conversation. He goes, Well, you ought to go visit Michael's church. He's got a church over in so so-and-so. You ought to go visit him sometime. You need to know Christ. He loves you. He did it on the backstroke. It was never a stressor. And I marveled at this guy with a zip-up jumpsuit and smiley face stickers on his person. And he, wear, he, he put the smiley face stickers on his Reebok walking shoes. Going, Floyd, what is this? You know? He would stir his coffee with his cross pen and put it back in his pocket. And he's a weird dude. He lived the life of Christ in a way that still convicts and encourages me. Because he was so in the Word, he was so into the personal work of Christ that he could not stop talking about it. Paul says, don't let external substances control you. Be controlled by the internal person of Jesus Christ. And he's a perfect example to me. Even though he's with the Lord now. He still ministers to me. Now both phrases are one Greek word in the imperative. We have to do not get drunk and be filled with but they're just one word that the same tense if you you and I all read Greek fluently we'd go oh they pop off the page and that was the important, that was the point of this phrase. Unlike other ministries of the Spirit are conditional this one is cooperative. If I'm filled with the Spirit of God there will be some kind of change. Again, um, Uh, Paul ends, writes, the meaning of filled simply is control. The indwelling of the Spirit of God is the one who should continually control and dominate the believer. Charles Ryrie in his little basic theology writes, a sovereign act of God where he possesses someone in a special activity. The highlights of this are the result of the state of being filled with the Spirit. It occurs in Luke with John the Baptist, with Elizabeth, with Zacharias. They're all filled with the Spirit of God. It occurs with the large group at the day of Pentecost, with the Apostle Peter, with believers post-Pentecost, with Paul a number of times. The Spirit's filling can be described as an extensive influence and the control over the believer's life. It evidences itself. This is where I think we can think a measurement. It evidences itself. By the abiding state of fullness, rather than the event, it produces a character that seemed to be a synonym of spirituality. And on he goes. Now, here's some interesting aspects of the filling. Number one, we find no command in the Scripture to be filled. This is one of the areas that I've encountered over the years where people are very confused based on their upbringing. There's no command, be filled. Um, You don't pray for this. In fact, I find no injunction in the text that says ask for it because it's cooperation. You might say this is the one thing we do, and I use that in parentheses and quotations and a pencil. Theologically, it's a little bit thin, but stay with me. It's the one thing we're doing as we are allowing the Holy Spirit to control me in a situation where my flesh might control me, my personality might dominate, my impetuousness might come out. Um, I remember years ago uh, being in college groups where they you know, they pray and and a lot of Christian music. Not to be unkind, was about filling this the Holy Spirit come and fill this room and fill the That's just totally wrong theology. That's totally wrong theology. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're indwelt, you're sealed, you're baptized, you're identified, and you and I get the privilege to the choice to obey submitting to his control or not. It's just that simple. Why do we make it complex and mysterious? So, when I get up in the morning, Cindy and I both do this. We get out of bed, am I going to serve myself or am I going to serve my Savior? Lord, I need your spirit to help me because I'm a selfish person and I'll look at audio stuff all day long and read audio stuff and watch YouTube's on audio stuff and I'll waste hours before I know what's happened and oh, i got a sermon to write. Oh, I need to spend some time in the Word. Oh, I need to read this, this stack of books that I'm working on for interviews. I need to get the work. I'm not saying those interests are bad or wrong. I think we can do them for the glory of God. But you and I have this. This is the choice we have. Am I going to let the Spirit control me or not? Don't make that mysterious or complicated. It's pretty simple. Don't be filled with wine. He's using illustration. Rather. Let the Holy Spirit control you. And I think if you are a note-taking person in your Bible, I would write the word in pencil controlled over the word filled. Because filling has the idea of I need more of the Spirit of God. And that was something I was taught in college. You need more of Christ's Spirit. Well, then, of course I'm going to pray for more. I mean, that's the reason I'm not as good a Christian, because I need more. And it was like, wait a minute, hello, McFly, McFly. You're already filled with the Spirit of Christ You don't need any more. You might say it this way. I don't need more of him. He needs more of me. And that's another one I put in pencil. It's a little bit lame theologically, but it's not about getting more of Christ. It's about, do I submit more? Am I ready to run to obey? Another phrase that I've learned last decade. Michael, do you run to obedience as fast as you want to run to sin? External control, internal control. Secondly, Um, And we've talked about this in terms. The sinning both grieves and quenches the spirit. And quenching is an interesting term when when you tandem it with filling. If I'm choosing to live in sin, what's my spiritual appetite going to be like? Quenched. Quenched. You cannot live in sin and have a vital fellowship with Christ. It's impossible. Can't. That's why I'm no good as a counselor. Don't come to me. Depressed, don't be. <laughs> Discouraged, get over it. Apathetic, buck up. I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's how I do it. People who are wired that way do it much better than me. That's why you don't want to come to me for help. Um, but I read this passage about I can grieve and quench the spirit. Whew. So that's, that's kind of an interesting motivation. If I am controlled by God's Spirit, I can resist temptation. Just by the way, none of us are going to be sinless. In, you know, back to my Catholic roots. I wish I could absolve you of your guilt and shame. I really do. Because guilt and shame will not change you. Oh, it might have a short affect, but it's not going to change us. I need God's Spirit to help me change. Thirdly, uh, being controlled by the Spirit is to let him control me, allow that filling, that controlling. Um, and it, to me, it comes down to, is my flesh controlling me, or am I submitting to the Spirit of Christ? You know, when, I, when I'm in a meeting, and, and praise God, I'm not in meetings like I used to be, but when I would be in these long meetings, some of you are in, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, some of you are in long meetings, and you know, most meetings need to be set on fire on both ends, cut in half in the middle, and you know, I have a friend who's in a company, and he said, we have standing meetings now. And there's 15 minutes. We don't sit down. We don't get coffee. We don't get donuts. We stand up. in 15 minutes to get back to work. Because meetings just, just perpetuate meetings. But I'd be in these meetings with good Christian people. I'd be so impatient. I'd be driving. My, I mean, I'm going crazy inside. Uh, Lord, give me a non-anxious presence or I'm going to kill these people or who are going to fire me or both. I mean, I need help right now because there's enough stupid in this room for a long time. And, and, and I was sitting there, wait, 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 wait. Christ loves these people. You love them just as much and more than I do. You love me the same way. This ain't about me. I need to submit to you. Well, finally, let's talk about this evidence. And this, to me, is very helpful in my spiritual life. I hope it will be in yours. Is Galatians 5, 19 to 23. Christy used this for the kids, so we end on where we began with our children. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident. Watch what Paul does here. We're going to see in a minute, but the fruit of the Spirit. Let's read this quickly. The deeds of the flesh are evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and like things like these. Of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Quick pause there. This is what the flesh looks like. Now, please watch this. So important. Now the deeds of the flesh, but verse 22, but the fruit of the spirit, I don't know how many Christians missed this parallel. This is what the flesh looks like. We we jump to the fruit of the spirit. We don't know the context, This is what your normal sinful life looks like. But, but the deeds of the flesh, the the fruit of the spirit, the outworking of the spirit is, same with me, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. The law told you all those deeds of the flesh were wrong. How effective was it? Not so much. I felt guilty and I still sinned. I covered my guilt with more sin. I, I surround my people, that think this, with people with people that think the same way about that sin to endorse my sinful lifestyle. That's how it works, right? I need recalibration. And this passage, by the way, I have this crazy theory that the word love is the parent noun of all these. And that's why it's singular fruit, not fruits. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And a person who's indwelt, Baptized, sealed by the Holy Spirit, his or her primary change of heart is love. What does love look like? Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. That's the manifestation of the fruit. So it's a simple question Are you more loving when you're controlled by the Spirit of God? That's why I say, in a way, it's measurable. So, when you and I encounter those people, I know you're not like me, that you just don't like. You better not be around them. You wish you could fire them. You wish they were not working with you. You know, God help you when they're your superior, right? I mean, Lord, we just take him or her home. You never (laughs) prayed that prayer out loud, but you might have thought it, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love. Why? Because the ground at Calvary is level. I'm not any better than anyone, and you're not any better than anyone. Christ died in our place on our behalf instead of you.